nice. And we're off. All right. Uh, well, good morning, Weymouth. Welcome. Welcome once again. Thank you for, for joining us here as we worship together. It's a, it's a fun day here in the life of our church family. Uh, we'll, we'll be celebrating uh, worship together this morning, communion, and then this afternoon we'll have our uh, church picnic and baptism service, that too. So we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit here. But uh, as we get started in worship, let's just take a few moments uh, to quiet our hearts in prayer, uh, in silent prayer before the Lord. So let's do that together now. Isaiah 53, the the prophet says this about the uh, suffering servant of the Lord. He says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And Father, we praise you this morning that we can come into your presence. We can worship your name, not because of our own righteousness or because of our own goodness, but because of Christ, our Savior, your Son, our the ultimate suffering servant who came and died in our place as an offering to make us righteous before you. So help us to praise you, to live a life of praise in response to all you are and all you've done for us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. We'll please stand and we'll sing together. Stop. 
We just have a few uh, announcements to bring to your attention here as we continue on in, in worship together this morning. Uh, like I said at the, at the outset, it's, it's a fun day here in the life of our church. Uh, in Scripture, we've been given uh, two ordinances as a church that we practice together, uh, communion and baptism. And today we have the privilege of, of celebrating both of those together uh, this morning after the, the sermon. A little bit later in the service, we'll be celebrating the ordinance of communion together and then uh, this afternoon, we have our annual uh, church picnic and baptism service that's going to be taking place at 2 o'clock, 2 p.m. at the home of uh, Mark and Angie Iacona. So that is open to all. All are welcome to that. And you can find directions uh, to the Iacona's home on the welcome table uh, after the service, just right through these doors. There'll, there'll be food available. There'll be a pool. There'll be uh, fun and games. Uh, we'll, we'll arrive around 2. We'll spend a little bit of time hanging out together. We'll start the baptisms around 2.30, and then we'll We'll eat together and, and fellowship together, so that'll be a sweet time. So we encourage you, if you're able, to, to join us for that. That's going to be fun, a uh, special time here together. Uh, and then just continuing on, two other things to make you aware of. You can find these in, our, in your bulletin on our website, weymouthchurch.com. Uh, in a couple weeks, on Wednesday, September 6th, we're starting uh, what we're calling our Weymouth Family Nights. This is a time for uh, our church family to get together, but also a time for us to invite uh, other people into uh, our, our church building, into our community on these Wednesday nights from 6.30 to 8, where we'll have a midweek prayer group. We'll have a group for parents to be encouraged and equipped, a group for students, for uh, nursery-age kids, elementary and preschool-age kids. Um, so there's something for everybody, and hopefully it's a chance to engage, to evangelize, to, to think about the gospel, to think about different uh, topics and, and issues from a biblical perspective. So we're excited for those starting up on the 6th. And then uh, on September 10th, in a similar vein, uh, we are launching our, our one-to-one Bible reading class. Um, and that's going to be going through the book, One-to-One Bible Reading by David Helm. And, and our hope with that class is uh, to provide a space for believers to be equipped be equipped to go and really launch a movement of Bible reading, a movement of reading the Bible with another person. Because it's great for us to read the Bible as individuals. It's great for us to come together and hear preaching and come under God's word corporately uh, during our worship. But it, it's also a great opportunity that we have to, to learn how to read the Bible with another person, especially with somebody who doesn't know Christ or who's a new believer. And so our hope, our prayer as a church is that we'll uh, come under that conviction of wanting to share God's word, speak God's word to someone else, and so we want to use this class as an opportunity to train people to do that, to give some framework, some ideas, some structure, some methods to be able to go and, and use God's Word to take it to, uh, to non-believers, to new believers, to share the gospel, to go and make disciples. So if you'd like to be a part of that, you can go to our website, waymuschurch.com. You can click on the events tab. There's a, a link there to sign up um, and find more information as well. So that's coming up September 10th. Uh, and then you can find a number of other things in our bulletin, on our website, in the Church Center app. So be sure to, to keep an eye on that as we go through the fall here. 
Now, as we uh, enter into a time of prayer together, a time of pastoral prayer, we want to, uh, as we pray, we're going to be, we want to rejoice together with uh, Matthew and Katie Robinson on the birth of their new daughter last night. Uh, Susanna Grace was born at 10.52 p.m., so we got that baby shower in just in time last week, right? So thank you guys who are part of that, and for those of you who've been praying for them, uh, mother and baby are doing well, so please keep praying for Matthew and Katie as they, uh, you know, adapt to life with with two kids and as they recover and as they uh, rejoice in this gift of new life together. We also want to continue to be praying for Vic and Connie Sanook as Connie goes through uh, treatments for cancer. So please keep them in your prayers for God's grace and peace as they go through this, uh, this difficult season, this difficult time. We're also uh, continuing our, our practice of, of praying for, for a local church. And this morning we're praying for Trinity Church in Medina, a newer church, a church that was planted back in October of 2022. Uh, so I'm going to be praying for them, and then also uh, for uh, number 10 on the Open Doors World Watch list of countries in which it's most dangerous to be a Christian. So this morning we are praying for the country of Sudan. So all that being said, please bow and pray with me. Well, gracious Father, we thank you this morning for the, the life we have in Christ, the life we have as a church family, that we can come together, we can worship you, we can... Um, we can celebrate these ordinances that you've given us, Lord. Um, so as we do so today, as we come around the Lord's table, as we celebrate baptisms this afternoon, as we fellowship together, as we sit under your word, Lord, uh, help us to come not uh, in our own merit, not in our own strength, but in the merit of Christ, our Savior, who has poured out for us, who is himself our righteousness. Lord, so forgive us for our sins as we worship you this morning, Lord, creating us uh, a clean heart, O oh God, renew a right spirit within us as we look to your word, as we uh, praise you in response, Lord. And we thank you for this new life we have in Christ, and we thank you for the gift of, of new physical life here in the birth of Susanna Grace last night, Lord. We thank you for how you worked to bring her safely into the world. We pray that you'll help Katie to recover and you'll help her and Matthew and Miriam as they transition into this new season as a family of four with Susanna and that you'll help both Miriam and Susanna to grow in the knowledge of the Lord, to grow to saving faith in Christ as they get older. Help us as a church to know how to come alongside and partner with them and serve them as a family as they raise their kids in the Lord. Lord, we also lift up Vic and Connie to you. Please strengthen and equip them with your grace, with your spirit, Lord, as they walk through this difficult time. Please grant them favor with the different treatments Connie is undergoing. Help them to be effective. Help them to, to work well, Lord. But we ask ultimately that your will will be done, that your name will be glorified, that you'll use Vic and Connie to be a witness for you, a light for you in such a dark place, in such a dark season, to be witnesses to the hope of the resurrection. And help us as a church family to be uh, uh, your hands and feet to them, to serve them, to come alongside and encourage and, and help them to bear their burdens with them, Lord. And then we lift up others who are going through burdens that are, that are unmentioned this morning, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Lord, strengthen them. Let this church family be a place where people can come and share their burdens, share their questions, their doubts, their struggles. Help us to bear with one another in love, to glorify you, to show the world a picture of your love by how we care for one another. And help us to do that well as we partner together with other churches, both locally and globally, as we celebrate the union, the unity we have in Christ all over the world. And Lord, we lift up Trinity Church to you as they uh, continue on as a, a new church plan, as they seek to exposit your word and uh, share the gospel with non-Christians. Lord, grow them. Help them to be a light 
here in Medina. Help them to bring more people into your kingdom by your grace and by your mercy. So bless them as they worship you this morning, as they study your word. Uh, equip them and, and use them for your glory. Lord, we pray for the church in Sudan as they navigate uh, changes and government and, and the rise of persecution there. Strengthen the believers, strengthen the churches. Lord, give them the uh, a peace that it makes no sense to the world. Give them a, a boldness that makes no sense to the world, that only comes from your spirit, that only comes from the living hope that we have in Christ, Lord. Help us to know that living hope this morning as we continue to praise you, as we think about what it means to rely on you in prayer, what it means to come under your word together, Lord. Help us in all these things we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Uh, well, well, speaking of new life, I want to invite the, the kids now to come on up to the front uh, for our time in the, the New City Catechism together, singing through the Lord's Prayer. So come on up, have a seat up here on the steps. Woo-hoo, that was super fast. All right. So I'm going to start off this morning as we continue on. We've been going through the, the Lord's Prayer, this prayer from Matthew 6 that Jesus gives us that we're studying in our catechism time. And uh, to start off, I want to, I want to start with a question that I hopefully is, hopefully is pretty easy to you. Uh, raise your hand if you uh, eat lunch or have ever eaten lunch in your life. Raise your hand. Okay, good, good. That is a great comfort to me to know that you guys have lunch uh, most days, at least hopefully. Uh, sometimes I forget to eat lunch, uh, but that's on me. That's not on anybody else. Um, now, when you guys have lunch, who, who usually makes lunch for you? Do you make it for yourself, or does somebody make it for you? My, my, my mom oh, and my sister. Your mom and your sister? And my dad. And your dad. Nice. And sometimes me, my, me and my dad t- go out. That's awesome, right? Yeah? So now you go and out to eat? That's cool. I, I make myself lunch. You do? That's amazing. That's really cool. Nice. Yeah, do you guys all have somebody in your life that will sometimes, you know, make you lunch, make you dinner, provide for you in that way, right? Your mom, your dad, your grandma, your grandpa, an older sibling, maybe you're learning to do that for yourself, right? Because we need that, right? And almost all the time, my, my grandpa and my, my grandma actually makes nice. me lunch. And, and almost all the time? Mm-hmm. Nice, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Most all the time, yeah. <laughs> that's beautiful, I love that. Because we need that, right? We need that daily sustenance. We need food. We need meals to, to survive, to live physically, right? And I was thinking about that this week because our next line, we're going through the Lord's Prayer here. We're taking it line by line. And uh, this week we're looking at this, this phrase where when we pray to God as our Father for his name to be hallowed and praised for his kingdom to come, we also pray for him to give us today our daily bread. Now, when we say that, we're not saying, God, please make bread rain down on the sky from us, right? We're not asking God to just give us a loaf of bread every day. Well, that bread is, is a bigger term, and it reflects the, the needs that we have, the, the need for food, for shelter, for life, these practical needs that all of us as human beings have, right? And yeah, it's great when we have, we have parents that provide that for us, when we have you know, friends and family that help us. It's great that we have houses that with roofs over our heads. But part of the Lord's Prayer is recognizing that all of those good things, parents, houses, food, clothing, those things we need to live, those are actually all come ultimately from God. God is our, you know, the one who's our sovereign creator who controls everything. And he's the one who gives us breath in our lungs. He gives us food to eat, clothes to wear. And so when we pray to God, give us this day our daily bread, we're praying for him to keep providing for our practical needs, reminding us that we depend on him for everything that we have. And so when you have lunch, when you have meals, when you have clothes to wear every morning, it's great you know, to thank your mom and dad. It's great to thank your grandma and grandpa, your family, for giving those things. And you should do that like all the time, like every day, like you know, 
over and over again. But even more so, we want to thank God and pray to God and depend on God as He's our ultimate provider. That He loves us so much that He wants to meet our physical needs, our practical needs, no matter how great or how small. And so we, part of the reason we praise God, part of the reason we trust God is that He is a good God who gives us these good gifts, this daily bread every day. And so we want to thank Him for that and we want to trust Him for that each new day, even when we're not sure what tomorrow is going to bring or what tomorrow is going to look like. We can look to Him and trust Him as our ultimate provider. Does that make sense? So much sense. So much sense. I when you say it. That's ultimate awesome. Sense. Ultimate sense. Good. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's what I want to hear. Well, let's pray then to God, our ultimate provider. Well, gracious Father, we thank you that you uh, have provided for us, that you give us each day our, our daily bread. We pray for you to continue to give us each day our daily bread, that uh, you'll free us from the, the worries and cares and anxieties that come with, uh, with looking for how we're going to live each day or thinking about uh, the practical needs we have, Lord. But help us to cast all those cares, all those needs on you and trust you to provide, to give us the things we need. And uh, and to praise you in, to res- in response for how you graciously provide for us as our, as our Lord, as our God. Lord, so humble us even as we think about just the, the basic meals that we, each eat, we eat each day, the clothes we wear on our backs. Lord, help us to see each of these things as gifts from you to be humbled by your gracious provision each day for us. And to remember your ultimate provision for us in Christ, uh, our Savior, the bread of life. So Lord, help us to trust you more and more as you give us each day our daily bread. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, well, now it's time to uh, with Mrs. Martin to Children's Church. So follow up behind her and Miss Lori, and uh, the rest of us will stand, and we'll sing another song together. So please stand.
seated. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, we uh, thank you for this, this time we've had already this morning to, to praise you, to, to think about how you have, have washed us clean, how uh, you have paid it all, how you have done everything necessary to make us new in Christ, to make us alive in Christ. So help us now as we come to your word, help us to uh, have soft, receptive hearts, to have open eyes, to see and understand it. Uh, as we come around your table in response to your word, Lord, help us to be receptive and uh, to, as we contemplate the symbols, the, the pointers you've given us uh, to the, the price that Christ has paid for our salvation. So help us in all these things we pray now in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles uh, once again to the book of Mark, the book of Mark here, Mark chapter 14. Uh, well, we're continuing on here as we move through the, the passion narrative in Mark's gospel as we read his account of, of Jesus moving, uh, moving towards the cross here. He's been spending time in Jerusalem. Him and his disciples have come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover together, and now uh, steps are being taken towards, uh, directly towards the cross here. Uh, in particular, this starts in Mark 14 and verse 12 with the, the celebration of, of Passover uh, in Jerusalem with Jesus and his disciples. So I'm going to read this morning for us this uh, passage here, Mark 14, verses 12 uh, to 25. And then we'll spend some time thinking about it together and, and we'll, uh, we'll conclude that time by celebrating uh, the Lord's table with one another. So follow along as I read Mark 14, starting in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and said to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day, when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Amen. This is the word of God. Now, I was thinking back to uh, one of my favorite uh, days this week, one of my favorite days ever as a Cleveland sports fan. And that day was, of course, I don't know if you remember this date, but June 19th, 2016, which was obviously the day that the Cleveland Cavaliers won the NBA championship, right? Y'all remember that? It was about what, like... Seven years ago now, it's making me feel old here. Um, 
AJ's not here, so he doesn't make any smart remarks. But uh, June 19th, 2016 was the day the Cavs won the championship. And what made this day extra special was it was also Father's Day. And so I had the really uh, unique and special experience of getting to watch that game, Game 7, uh, with my dad, with the person who's the whole reason I'm a Cleveland sports fan for good and for bad, right? Sometimes that feels more like a curse than a blessing, but um, I was able to watch the game with him, and it was just this really special moment to, to celebrate Father's Day in this way and watching this championship that hadn't happened uh, since he was two years old, right? Um, so it was really cool. It was perfect timing uh, for that kind of game, for that kind of victory, you know, to celebrate a championship like that with my dad on Father's Day. It added a deeper layer of meaning to that game for myself and for, I know, many other families. And in a similar way, as we read about the, the final events here in Mark's gospel that lead to the crucifixion of Christ, uh, these events, they take place at a perfect time. They take place in the context of Passover, in a time that, uh, in a celebration that reveals, that points us to the deeper meaning of what Jesus is doing and going to the cross, about why he is crucified. Now, we talk about Passover, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. This was a celebration, a celebration that the people of Israel participated in every year. This was a celebration, a time of remembrance in which they remembered and rejoiced in how God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. We had worked through Moses and others, and he had worked through uh, the the miracles and the the plagues of God to to bring an exodus from bondage, an exodus from Egypt. And so each year, the people of Israel, they would come to Jerusalem. They would celebrate Passover together and remember God's past rescue, his past redemption of them from Egypt. But Passover was also a time where the people of Israel looked forward. We looked forward to a greater deliverance, a greater redemption, a new exodus to come in the coming of the Messiah. And so as Christ celebrates this meal with his disciples, as he celebrates Passover with them, what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to interpret the elements of Passover to point to his death and resurrection. Because this is a perfect time for Jesus to go to the cross, this time of Passover, because in going to the cross, Jesus reveals, he is showing to us that he is the ultimate Messiah. He is the one who has come to bring about this greater exodus, this ultimate redemption, this greater deliverance. And so our theme this morning, what we're going to be looking at is how Jesus interprets the Passover, how he interprets the elements of Passover to point then to his death and his resurrection, to point to the new exodus that he has come to bring. And in doing so, in interpreting Passover in this way, Jesus, what he does is he also institutes for us, he gives us a new ordinance, a new meal, a new celebration in which all who trust Christ can rejoice, can celebrate, can remember how God has delivered us from bondage, how he has redeemed and rescued us from slavery to sin. So Jesus here, in interpreting the Passover, he also institutes for us the ordinance of communion, our own regular uh, time of remembrance and celebration as the church. And so this morning we'll see in the text how Jesus does this by first looking at Uh, how he instructs his disciples, how he identifies his betrayer, and then finally how he interprets the Passover. That'll be our three headings this morning. Instruction, identification, interpretation. So first look with me in verses 12 to 16 how Jesus uh, instructs 
the disciples as they prepare for Passover together. Because what's happening is Jesus and the disciples, they've been in Jerusalem, and on the first day of Passover, they go and they sacrifice the Passover lamb. And the disciples ask Jesus, they say, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Because remember, Jesus and his disciples, they're pilgrims in Jerusalem. They're part of uh, this group of thousands of people who have come to the holy city to celebrate Passover. And so Jesus and the disciples, they didn't have a home in the city. They didn't have an Airbnb reserved, right? They didn't have a a place. They didn't know exactly where they were going to stay or where they could celebrate this meal together. And so they asked Jesus, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? But not only were they dealing with the chaos of the crowds in Jerusalem, they're also dealing with the opposition from the Jewish leaders. Because Mark has told us that the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, these Jewish leaders, they are actively looking for Jesus, looking for opportunities to find him, to arrest him. And so the city of Jerusalem is not a safe place for Jesus to be. And yet in spite of all of this, in spite of all this craziness going on, these circumstances, Jesus, he responds with very specific instructions for his disciples. He directs them to find a a man carrying a jar of water, which would have stood out for them because that was, in that culture, the job that typically only women did. Typically only women carried jars of water, so he points them to someone who will stand out, who will lead them to a house, the master of which would show them to a furnished upper room that was ready for them to prepare the Passover. Jesus gives them these specific instructions and they follow these instructions and everything works out exactly as Jesus told them. They go to this upper room and they begin to prepare the Passover for Jesus and his disciples. And so what we're meant to see there in these verses is that even in the midst of the chaos of the crowds, even in the midst of the opposition of the Jewish leaders, Jesus, he is sovereign. He is in control over every detail that is happening. The chaos, the opposition, the uncertainty is not keeping him from uh, being in control, from being confident, from organizing every little detail to work things out for his disciples. Because the disciples, they're consumed with the details of the Passover. They're curious about how this is going to work out because in their minds, that's the whole reason that they've come to Jerusalem. The whole point that the whole reason they're in the city is to celebrate Passover together. But Jesus knows that the Passover celebration is really just one step, one step on his journey to a greater Passover, on his journey to the cross. And so even as he anticipates this suffering and death to come, even as he deals with chaos and crowds and opposition, Jesus, he walks forward towards the cross with gracious intent over everything that is happening, over every detail. He is confidently in control over every step on on the road to his crucifixion. He's not a passive victim here. He's carrying out a plan, a mission given to him by his Father. And this should comfort us because as human beings, as human beings, we're, we're happy to, to see that God is in control. We're happy to believe that God is in control when things are going well, right? When life is good, when things are, are going along as they should be, it's easy to think, oh yeah, God's in control. Look at all these blessings. Look at all these things, these nice things he's giving me. But what happens when life gets chaotic or painful? What happens when opposition or anxiety breaks in? What happens when the future looks bleak or uncertain, when the to-do list is filled with dread? How can we trust? 
How can we believe that God is in control then? When things get hard, when things get painful. But we can trust God because we can look to Christ. We can look to Christ and see how He was in control, completely in control. Even as He faced His own chaos, His own suffering, His own hardship, His own death. He was still in control, working out, carrying out the plan of God. And so if his own suffering, if Christ's own suffering didn't undo his compassionate control, why would we think that our suffering, our hardship, would be able to undo his compassionate control? If the suffering of Christ did not keep him from being able to be sovereign over everything that was happening, why would we think he'd drop the ball when we face hardship, when we face suffering? In Christ, we have a Savior, we have a Lord who knows what it's like to suffer, to face hardship, to anticipate pain and suffering, and yet to be faithful in the midst of that, to work out and carry out God's plan in the midst of that. He carried that out in his own life, and he can carry that out in our lives as well. So we can look to him, we can be confident in him, even as we face chaos or opposition or hardship. Because Christ, he's not just compassionately in control in spite of suffering. No, he's compassionately in control in the midst of suffering, over suffering and hardship. There's no detail of our lives. No matter how mundane or how tragic, there's no detail that uh, is unable, that cannot be used by him in his gracious will to bring about a greater plan, a greater purpose than we could ever imagine. We may not see it in the moment. We may not like how it feels in the moment. But when we see from the scope of eternity what he is doing, what he has done, we'll see how he can, uh, he can use even our hardships, even our pain, to carry out his purposes in ways that lead us to glorify him and praise him like never before. There's no detail of our lives, however mundane or tragic, that he cannot use. And we see this as Christ says his steps towards the cross as they bring him into greater and greater hardship. Starting here with this Passover, we're we entering into this time of Jesus walking through the rest of chapter 14 and into chapter 15. And each scene we see, Jesus is going to go deeper into pain, deeper into affliction, into betrayal, abandonment, pain, despair, suffering, ultimately crucifixion and death. And so we see then that Jesus' instructions to the disciples it, it then is followed by his identification of his betrayer. His identification of his betrayer in verses 17 through 21. Uh, one of my favorite games uh, that I would play in youth ministry, I was a youth pastor for nine years, and one of my favorite games that we would play is a game called Mafia. It's called Mafia. I've played it with some of the students here. It sounds like a nice, uh, wholesome church game, right? Mafia, Right? And now, just wait, let me tell you about it. You'll see. Uh, so the way this game works, some of you might know it. Some of you might call it werewolf. That's another name for it. But basically, you have a group of people who, you know, get different cards. And a few people are secretly identified as the mafia. And their goal in the whole game is, is to silently, secretly identify and kill everyone else in the game, right? Like I told you, it's a, it's a wholesome church youth group game, right? Um, Right? And as you're playing Mafia, there's one person, uh, the narrator, who kind of leads the game, who tells the story, who you know, organizes everything, keeps everything moving. And the narrator doesn't actually play in the game, but they, they are, they're moving the game along, and they get to see who all the different players are in the game. And as Jesus and his disciples, as they're celebrating Passover together, 
Jesus like the narrator in a game of mafia. He knows that, that one of the people in the room is not what he seems. He knows that someone there is going to betray him. And so he, he tells his disciples, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And this then launches the disciples into their own game of mafia, right? They take turns going to Jesus and they say to him, Is it I? Is it I? They're trying to figure out if they're the one who's going to betray Jesus, if they're the one who's going to betray their their master and their teacher. And Jesus here, he gives them a a, a pretty broad but convicting response. He says, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. He says, "One one of you who's dipping the bread into this communal dish with me, that is who is going to betray me. But it's important to see when Jesus, when he talks about dipping the bread into the dish, this isn't just the, the bread course before the meal, right? Jesus isn't just talking about, you know, they're not just eating breadsticks at Olive Garden together, which is, is a great thing to do. There's really good breadsticks at Olive Garden. I could like eat a whole meal of just breadsticks for like a week, um, right? This isn't just, this isn't just a, a normal meal. Remember, they're celebrating Passover together. Celebrating Passover together, and part of the Passover meal involved uh, dipping bread and, and bitter herbs into a bowl of, of stewed fruit. And these, these bitter herbs, this bread, it was, it was meant to symbolize the bitterness of Israel's slavery in Egypt. And so it seems that Jesus, within the context of the Passover meal, he's taking this moment of bitterness to, to point out the bitter reality that someone is going to betray him, that one of his closest followers is going to, to turn him in to go against him, to deliver him over. But the point of uh, this passage to fo- that, that we need to focus in on is that uh, at this point in the meal, this solemn, bitter moment in the meal, all of the disciples would have been dipping their bread into this communal bowl with Jesus. They were participating together in this solemn meal, this meal that was commonly celebrated with your family. And so Jesus saying that someone is going to betray him, this isn't just like saying, oh, my coworker, you know, spoke badly about me uh, to my boss. This isn't just like an acquaintance turning his back on Jesus. No, this, this moment of Passover, this was an intimate, solemn family celebration. And Jesus is revealing the bitter truth that someone in the family is going to betray him. In Jesus' words here in verse 18, they echo the words of David in Psalm 41, where David declares in verse 9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. See, David here in Psalm 41, he's calling on God's grace to deliver him from his enemies. Even a close friend who has betrayed him. But then goes on, David goes on in verse 10 to pray, But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. And in Mark 14, then Jesus, the son of David, the ultimate David, he declares that he too is going to be betrayed by a close friend who is sharing bread with him. But like David, Jesus also declares that what's Going, what's happening is going along the, according, according to the sovereign plan, the sovereign grace of God. And Jesus too declares that his enemies will ultimately be repaid, that he will ultimately be raised, he will ultimately be delivered and vindicated. Jesus says in verse 21, he says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. 
It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. You see, Jesus' suffering is not an accident of chance. It's not a game with an unknown outcome. No, everything that's happening to Jesus is part of the sovereign, gracious plan of God to rescue his people. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Jesus knows that as he faces betrayal, as he faces death, that a greater plan is being worked out and that a greater justice is going to come. Greater justice, repayment is going to come to the one who betrays him. And that's important to see because as as fallen humans, we like the idea of justice. We like the idea of a victory of glory. But so often we want justice. We want victory. We want glory without suffering without pain, without hardship, right? We want a four-game sweep rather than a hard-fought game seven. We want want comfort. We want a, a victory that's easy. But the teaching of the Bible is that true victory, true glory, it comes through suffering, not apart from suffering. It comes through weakness, not apart from weakness. The teaching of the Bible is that suffering is not something that disproves or undoes God's compassionate control. It's that the grace in the grace of God, the Bible teaches us that suffering and weakness and hardship, these can actually be the very means that God uses to bring about his victory, to reveal his glory. And so Jesus then, he goes on to interpret the rest of the Passover meal. He interprets it to show his disciples the greater glory, the ultimate victory that is going to come through his own suffering. And so he goes from identifying his betrayer then to interpreting the Passover in verses 22 to 25. Now many of us, as we think about holidays, as we think about celebrations, right, many of us have different traditions we participate in. At Christmas, we might watch uh, It's a Wonderful Life every year. We might go and watch the 24-hour marathon of a Christmas story, right? Had to get it in there. Um, Thanksgiving, we might, you know, go around the table and say what we're thankful for. You know, we have traditions that are associated with these celebrations. And when they celebrated the Passover meal, the people of Israel also had traditions that went along with that meal, that went along with that celebration, And one of these traditions that would happen is that as they went through the meal, uh, the children who were present at the table, they would ask the head of the household a series of questions. And these questions were meant to to prompt the the head of the household, the father or the grandfather, whoever that was, uh, to explain and interpret how each element of the Passover meal uh, symbolized, pointed back to part of the Exodus story. This was the tradition around how they went through the meal, how they taught the meaning of the meal. And starting here in verse 22, Jesus, what he does is he takes up this tradition. He takes up the role of the head of the household, and he interprets the Passover meal for his family of disciples. But Jesus' interpretation, it's not one that the disciples would have heard before. It's not one that they would have heard growing up. Because what Christ does is he actually breaks with tradition. He shows them how these Passover elements, uh, they don't just point backwards to the exodus from Egypt, but they actually point forwards to the new exodus that he has come to bring in himself. Jesus, what he does is he first, he he takes the bread. And this bread is likely what would have been uh, referred to in the meal as the bread of affliction. This was bread that was meant to remind the people of their affliction when they were slaves in Egypt. 
So Jesus takes this bread, the bread of affliction, he breaks it, he blesses it, and then he passes it around to his disciples. But instead of giving the normal interpretation, saying the normal teaching of what the bread represents, Jesus instead, he says to his disciples, he says, take, this is my body. This bread of affliction, this is my body. Jesus is saying to them that this bread that has been broken, it symbolizes, it represents his body which is also going to be broken in affliction on the cross. See, when the Israelites, when they were slaves in Egypt, they lived under intense affliction and pain and bondage. But God, in his grace, he delivered them from that slavery. He delivered them from that affliction. And by interpreting the the bread as he does here, Jesus, he's saying that in order to deliver us from our greatest affliction, in order to deliver us from our bondage to sin and death, that Jesus is going to have to endure his own affliction. He himself is going to be broken on the cross in order to rescue and deliver sinners. Because we in our sinful rebellion and our hard-heartedness towards God and our idolatry, we deserve to be broken. That's a teaching of Scripture. We deserve to be broken by God's wrath and God's judgment for our sin, for our unrighteousness. The Bible teaches us that that we are the enemies of God. We are the ones who deserve his justice, his repayment, as David put it in Psalm 41. And yet Christ came to take that judgment, to be broken in our place, to become the ultimate bread of affliction so that we can receive him as the bread of life. And so Jesus, he takes the bread and he passes it out to his disciples. And how this would work is he would break off the pieces of the bread and he would hand it to the disciples and they would each hand the pieces along to the next person. The bread would pass from hand to hand until each person had an opportunity to take and eat. And in a similar way, we receive the benefits of Christ's brokenness by taking and receiving Christ himself through faith, through placing our confidence in him alone to free us from the affliction and the bondage of sin and of judgment by receiving him through faith and trust. And this receiving of Christ by faith, it it happens in community. Just as the bread was passed along in community, as the Passover was celebrated in community, when we come to faith in Christ, we are united with those who have passed that bread along to us, who have shared Christ with us, who have also trusted in Christ found salvation in him as the bread of life. And so we receive Christ as individuals through faith, but when we do so, we are brought into a new family. We are united into a new body. We are brought into a new covenant people. And this is what Jesus makes clear in his interpretation then of the cup. Because Jesus takes the cup, which would have been one of four cups of wine that was shared during the meal. He takes it, he gives thanks, and they all drink from it. And then Jesus says this, he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And here in the statement about the blood of the covenant, Jesus does something that I love it when he does this. And Mark records Jesus doing this a lot in his gospel, which Jesus here, he takes one sentence. And in that one sentence, he actually combines two major moments, two major teachings from the Old Testament. He summarizes two huge ideas uh, from the, the Old Testament in this one little sentence. And so briefly, I want to show how this works out, how this breaks down, because what Jesus is doing here, when he refers first to the blood of the covenant, 
He's using language that points us back to the book of Exodus, back to Exodus chapter 24. In that chapter, in Exodus 24, God's people, the Israelites, they've been delivered from slavery in Egypt. They've been walking through the wilderness, and then they arrive at Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God gives them his law. He gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them his commands. And then what happens after that, uh, Exodus tells us that Moses, he then made an altar at the foot of the mountain. He put up 12 pillars to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And then the people, they made an offering to God. They made an offering to God. And after they made this offering, Moses, he takes half the blood, right? This is interesting. He takes half the blood, puts it in, in a bowl, puts it aside. And he takes the other half of the blood and he throws it on the altar. He throws the blood on the altar and then he asks the people of Israel to affirm, to confirm that they're going to obey all of these commands that God has given them. And then once they do, Moses, he takes the, the rest of the blood, the other half of the blood, and he takes it and he throws it on the people. That'd be an interesting Sunday, right? If I showed up one morning and just threw a bowl of blood out on you all. But that's what's happening here. What was going on in that moment in that Old Testament uh, language and, and culture and context was uh, a covenant was being made. Right? Moses and the people, they were making a covenant with God in response to the giving of his law. And this covenant was sealed with, with blood. It was uniting the people with God at the altar and, and with themselves and saying that they were going to be his people. They were going to obey his commands. Right? They were making this covenant with the Lord. After delivering his people from slavery, God is making a promise to them. That's what a covenant is. A covenant, a covenant is a sure promise. God's making a promise with them that if they are faithful to him, they're faithful to his commands to worship him alone, obey his law, then he'll lead them into the promised land. He'll dwell in their midst. He'll make them a kingdom of priests to bless the entire world. And this covenant, this promise, it's, it's sealed with blood. It's sealed with blood on God's side on the altar. It's sealed with blood on the people's side on the people. And then what happens is we see this striking scene in Exodus 24, verses 9 through 11. I don't know if you've read this chapter before, but it's kind of wild. It says this. It says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abide, which are great names, uh, and 70 of the elders of Israel, they went up and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet as if it were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. It's kind of a wild scene, right? In Exodus 24, they make this, this offering, and then God commands the leaders of the people of Israel to go up on the mountain. And there they see God. They see the Lord. And what do they do with him? They, they have a meal together. They eat and they drink together. Mark tell, or Exodus tells us they beheld God, and they ate and they drank. They see God and they have communion with him. And then after, uh, after this, what happens then is God calls Moses up to the mountain by himself and the, the glory cloud, the cloud of God's glory descends on Mount Sinai. And God gives Moses, uh, he writes down the law on the stone tablets. He gives him the instructions for the tabernacle. But at this point, the, the story turns in the book of Exodus. Because the problem is, is that the people of Israel they don't stay faithful to this covenant. When Moses comes down uh, from the mountain in Exodus 32, after being there for 40 days and 40 nights, he comes down from the mountain and he sees another feast happening. But this was, this was not a feast where God's people beheld God and ate and drank together. 
What Moses sees is that while he had been up on the mountain, the people of Israel, they had grown impatient waiting for Moses to come down. And so they, they asked Aaron to make them a golden calf. And they make a golden calf and they worship it and they throw a, a feast in its honor. And Moses comes down and he sees this. And he sees that what has happened is that immediately, immediately after making a covenant to obey God's law, to be his people, the Israelites, they turn away from him. They turn away from him and they worship a false idol. They engage in, in a feast that is, is a mockery of what the leaders of Israel experienced on Mount Sinai. They fail to worship God alone. They fail to keep his commands. They're unfaithful to his covenant. And in this, we see our own hearts. We see our own sin. Because the sin at the root of every human heart means on our own, we will not cease to chase after other idols. On our own, we will not cease to break God's commands. And so like the Israelites, we cannot hope to secure God's blessing, God's salvation through our own efforts, through our own law-keeping, through our own good works, because we can't keep it perfectly. We're too corrupted by sin and rebellion and idolatry. We can't keep our end of the deal, right? The blood that is on us is the blood of judgment because we fail, because we rebel, because we chase after other idols. So we need a new covenant. We need a new covenant that's not dependent on what we do. We need a new offering that will truly allow sinners to stand in the holy presence of God, to behold Him, to have communion with Him. And as He passes around the cup in the upper room here, Jesus, He's telling His disciples that He has come to bring this new covenant, that His blood is the blood of the covenant, that He Himself is the perfect offering who brings cleansing from sin, who ushers us by faith into a new promise, a new covenant, a new relationship with God that's not based on our work and our obedience and what we do, but it's based on Christ's work, on his perfect finished work for us. And this work, it can't be undone by our failures. It can't be undone by suffering our hardship. It is perfect. It is finished in Christ. And it is this work, this covenant, this cleansing that truly allows us to know God in Christ, that truly will allow us to be his people, to be a kingdom of priests that will bless the whole world. And like the covenant in Exodus 24, this new covenant is also sealed in blood, sealed in the blood of Christ poured out for us. This is the second part of Christ's statement in verse 24 of his blood being poured out for many. And this part also points us back, it echoes another uh, key Old Testament passage. It echoes the, the words of Isaiah 53, with which we opened uh, the service this morning. Because in Isaiah 53, what's happening is the, the prophet Isaiah, he's talking about, he's promising this messianic figure uh, called the suffering servant. He's promising a, a servant who's going to come and suffer on behalf of God's people. And in verses 11 and 12 of Isaiah 53, he says this about the suffering servant. He says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Listen to this part. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. 
poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. This suffering servant in Isaiah 53, he's pouring himself out. He's dying in the place of God's people, giving himself as an offering for guilt. And he does that to make many to be accounted righteous. What that means is he's making many innocent before God, able to stand before a holy God, able to have communion with him by being cleansed of our sins. See, and when Jesus, what he's doing here, when he says that his blood is going to be poured out for many, when he links back to this passage in Isaiah, he's identifying himself as this suffering servant. He's saying he is the one who is going to the cross as an offering for guilt, who is going in the place of sinners to to die for them, to make many to be counted righteous, to make a way for sinners and failures and rebels to be able to stand in God's presence, to have communion with Him. But in order to do this, in order to usher in this new covenant, in order to restore sinful rebels into a right relationship with God, Christ's blood has to be poured out as an offering. He has to give his life as a sacrifice of atonement. He has to go to pay the price for our sins to reconcile us with God. And so it's only by receiving Christ in faith, by trusting in his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us, it's only then that we can be brought into true communion with God, that we can be made righteous before God, that we can behold him for eternity. Because Christ's death, it's not the end of the story. Look at verse 25. Jesus concludes, he says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. See, Jesus is going to suffer. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to be buried. But even knowing that, that that's going to happen, Jesus declares that a day is coming. A day is coming when he's going to take up a new cup that he'll drink it anew in God's restored kingdom. Jesus is saying that there's a greater feast to come because Christ didn't stay in the grave. He rose again. He ascended to his Father's right hand and one day he is going to return to fully and finally usher in his kingdom. And in that perfect kingdom for all of eternity, those who have received the bread of life, those who have been cleansed by the blood of the covenant. They will behold God. We will eat and drink together on an eternal feast, in an eternal communion. And so as he celebrates the Passover with his disciples, Jesus knows that this meal is just a symbol of a greater meal to come. And so Christ then, he interprets these elements, these elements of Passover to point to his death and resurrection and to also institute for us our own meal, our own meal that is a pointer of this greater meal to come. That's a pointer to this greater reality of the the life, the sustenance, the hope we have in the death and the resurrection of Christ through his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. Jesus gives us this meal, this meal of communion, this meal of remembrance in which we who have received Christ, who have trusted in him, who have taken him, we can rejoice together in the new covenant, the new life, the new uh, hope that we have in him. And so what we're going to do now here is we're going to do that together. 
We're going to behold Christ as we eat and drink together. We're going to proclaim his death until he comes. And so as we do so, my challenge for us this morning is take time in the quiet of your own heart to meditate on what these things mean. I'm not going to play music. We're going to leave things silent. And what I, what I ask of you is take some time to prayerfully contemplate, to interpret for yourself these elements of communion, to think and reflect on how, how beautifully the, the bread and the cup points us to the, the broken body of Christ, the shed blood of Christ. Take this time, take these moments of quiet as a church family to reflect, to contemplate his grace, his sacrifice, his deliverance, his victory. And let me say this this morning, that if you're not sure whether you've truly placed your faith in Christ, if you uh, have not truly received him in faith, then let me urge you this morning, rather than taking these communion elements, take Christ. Receive the bread of life. Look to his blood, not your own works, but look to his blood as the only thing that can cleanse you of your sin. Don't wait. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. Let this moment of contemplation and and remembrance and celebration, let these symbols point you to the salvation that is only available in Christ alone. I mean, think about this. Think about this. How amazing would it be If our celebration of communion this morning led to somebody getting baptized this afternoon, right? How cool would that be? So take this time. Think, reflect in your own heart. Have you truly received Christ? Have you truly trusted him, taken him, looked to him alone? And if you haven't, now is the perfect time. Communion is the perfect moment to look to him and rest in him in confidence as your savior. And then let us all in communion with Christ as his family, as his body, as his covenant community. Let us all take this moment to celebrate with one another, to look to this meal as a reminder to live joyfully in this new covenant, to live joyfully in this new life and security as a kingdom of priests, as those who are called and equipped to bring the blessing of God's grace to the whole world. So we'll do this together now in in our practice as a church family is that when we pass out the bread, we we take it and we receive it and uh, prayerfully reflect on it individually and then eat it individually. And then as we uh, pass out the cup, uh, we take it and and hold on to it and then we drink it together as a symbol of our our unity and our union in Christ. Uh, But before we do that, let me pray uh, for the bread for us. Gracious Father, we thank you that we can look to your word and see one great story of salvation. We can look to these symbols of, of Passover, the, the bread of affliction and, uh, and the cup, and, and we can see how these things point to Christ, to his body broken for us, his blood shed and poured out for us to bring about a new covenant, a new salvation, a new life, a new community. So Lord, help us now as we enter into this time of remembrance, as we enter into this time of of reflection and prayer and joy and celebration, Lord. Lord, work in our hearts uh, to, to open, uh, to soften them, to open blind eyes, Lord. Let those who have not yet taken Christ do so now. And let those who have received the bread of life, Lord, let this be a moment where we can rejoice and reaffirm and remember all you are and all you've done for us in your Son, this gracious gift that you have given us, that you give us not just our daily bread, but you have given us 
the bread of life in Christ. So let this bread be a reminder of these things now and help us to, to prayerfully uh, praise you in response as we reflect in our own hearts, as we live lives of service, to be a blessing to the world for your glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now let me pray for the cup for us. Father, as we take this cup, the, the blood of the covenant, as we remember this, this symbol that points us to the blood of Christ shed for us to cleanse us from sin, to bring us into a right relationship with you, we thank you for this uh, suffering servant, for our Savior, your Son, who's given himself in our place, who died the death that we deserve so that we could have communion with you so that we can be united together in communion with one another as one people in Christ. So help us, Lord, to rejoice in that, to celebrate that, to reflect on that now. In Christ's name, amen.
Now let us drink together as one people in Christ. Well, amen. Let me, uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll sing another song together. Merciful Father, we thank you for this time, uh, for this, this meal, this remembrance, Lord. And we thank you that even as we celebrate, we can look forward to a greater feast to come, a greater meal to come in your kingdom for eternity. Give us a taste of that now, Lord, as we praise you in response for the, the good gift uh, you've given us in your Son, the provision we have in his, his body and his blood and union with him through faith. Help us now to praise you in response to all of your grace in Christ. In his name, amen. Amen. Please stand and sing with us. Oh.
down, one to go, right? So I appreciate you joining us, celebrating that with us together. We'll uh, gather again in just over three hours here to, to celebrate uh, uh, baptism together. Um, or two hours? What time? Oh, yeah, it's almost 11. <laughs> can't tell time. Two hours, wow, that's even better. Um, and again, I can't think of a better way to spend those two hours in between now and then. If, if this morning you feel like this is the time for you to truly take Christ, truly trust in Him, I'd love to talk with you about what that means to, to, to see and hear your profession of faith uh, and, and then to allow you to participate in baptism this afternoon. So if, if you're thinking about that, if you have questions about that, please talk to me at the door, talk to one of our elders in the community room, talk to the person next to you, grab somebody. We'd love to talk with you more about these things. And uh, uh, we're thankful that you're here and we're thankful for the opportunity we have today uh, as a church family here. So uh, as we go, just uh, let's go with a word of benediction. Uh, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forever. Amen. 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 Go in peace. (laughs)